The reading is taken from John chapter 8, verse 12, and then moving over the page to John chapter 9, verses 1 to 12. Hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And chapter 9, starting in verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, good evening, everyone. Um, I've left myself a checklist of two things to do when I came up, have a drink of water and give a talk. So you'll be relieved to know we're already halfway through. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is uh, Daniel. I'm a member of the church family here, and it's um, a real pleasure to be here with you and to look at this uh, next part in our I Am series, looking at the statement, I am the light of the world. Uh, we're going to be looking um, at the whole of chapter 9. We've only read a little bit of it. You may want to have um, the whole of the chapter in front of you. Um, there are some Bibles scattered around at suitably socially distanced um, locations, or the internet also has the Bible. So if I see you on your phone, you're obviously um, deeply engrossed in John 9, which is excellent. Um, so this proclamation that Jesus makes as him being the light of the world, um, the context around it, I think, is really significant. So we're going to start by looking at the context in which he says uh, these words, and then we're going to go and we're going to look at two different uh, reactions to the words that he says. So let's pray as we start. 
Lord God, we pray that you would be meeting with each one of us here. Would you be helping us to hear your word? Would you help us to understand you better through it? And would you draw us closer to you through this time, Lord? Amen. So let's start with the context of where this is happening. We're in John's Gospel, and John chapters 7 through 9 are taking place during the Festival of Tabernacles. Um, This is uh, one of the festivals um, described in Leviticus, and it's a recollection of the temporary shelters that the Israelites lived in following their exodus from Egypt. Um, Just some verses from Leviticus 23. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, the Lord's festival of tabernacles begins, and it lasts for seven days. Live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters, so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. So this festival was one of the ones prescribed by God to recall all that he had done in the past. And the time that it recalls is partly a time of wilderness. It's a time of the Israelites traveling for 40 years through the wilderness, not being entirely sure where they're going. But it's also a time of God's presence with them. The tabernacle lived at the very center of the camp as the Israelites camped. And when they traveled, they traveled following God. Exodus tells us that by day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. And so in the darkness, when ordinarily it would be quite difficult for them to travel, God provides a pillar of light and his very presence with them in order to guide them. And one of the ways the festival of tabernacles was celebrated in Jerusalem um, was every afternoon on each of the seven days of the festival there were four large menorahs or candlesticks that were in the temple court. And these would have been lit. And then as the night fell, the light would have shone from them. And it was said that the light was so bright that it would fill every courtyard in Jerusalem. If you can imagine the quality of the light coming out of these uh, candlesticks. And Jesus' statement in chapter eight comes on the very last day of the Festival of Tabernacles. So they've had seven days of seeing this light emanating from the temple and filling the whole of Jerusalem. And it's in this context that you can imagine Jesus coming at the very end of this festival as sort of the the remembering of God's actions is coming to the close for the year. And it's in this context and at this point that in 8 verse 12, Jesus speaks and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. The light in the festival was a reminder of the presence of God with them. And as Jesus also refers to himself as the light of the world, this would have been a very clearly understood statement to the people who were there. This wasn't just an ordinary claim by an ordinary teacher. This was a claim by someone directly claiming to have the powers of God and the presence of God and the person of God. And Jesus repeats this claim in our second chapter, um, this evening, chapter 9 and verse 5, where he says, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And the context here again is very significant because he says this just before he opens the eyes of the man born blind. 
And again, this would have been something that would have been very significant for um, Jewish people at that time who would have been having a certain expectation of the Messiah coming and would have been aware of what was written about him. In particular, there are some verses from Isaiah that would have been very relevant. For instance, Isaiah 35. Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. With divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Here, the coming of God is made um, present, made obvious by miracles, including the healing of blindness. And likewise, in Isaiah 42, at the start of a series of passages referred to as the suffering servant, Isaiah says this, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. And so again, the coming of the, of the Messiah that was promised would be indicated by healing, opening eyes that are blind, and the Messiah himself was described as a light for the Gentiles. And we see this merging of these two images in Jesus' statement as well. The festival of the tabernacles recalls the light that was offered to the Israelites in the wilderness. And Isaiah 42 refers to the light being offered to the Gentiles. And together, Jews and Gentiles is everybody in the world. In other words, a light to the Jews and a light to the Gentiles is the light of the world. And we can see here that this is an extension of what God has been doing already. Jesus is continuing the work that God has already done in lighting the light of the Israelites to extend it to the entire world. You can imagine the lights in the center of the temple going out to Jerusalem, but the surrounding countryside still being dark. And in this context, Jesus claiming that he will light the world. And it's in this context, as I say, that we see two different reactions to Jesus' actions here. And in John 9, verse 39, Jesus says, For judgment I have come into the world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. And we'll see examples of both of these in the chapter as we look through it. And the first of the two we're going to look at is those who see will become blind, people who were able to see and had all the ability to see, and yet completely missed what was going on. And this is what happens with the Pharisees. The Pharisees completely miss, essentially, what Jesus is doing here, despite the fact that they were probably one of the most well-qualified people to have been observing exactly what was happening. But I think for our um, modern perspectives, it can be a little bit confusing sometimes, some of the things that are going on in here. The actions of Jesus, for instance, seem a little bit unusual. Jesus spitting on the ground, making some mud, putting it on the man's eyes and sending him to wash in a pool. This seems um, a little bit unusual. Admittedly, healing people's sight is also a bit unusual, but there's, there's a lot of unusual things going on here. Um, and one thing to note is that this isn't something that is required in order to heal people's sight. Jesus elsewhere in the Gospels, for instance, Mark 8, Mark 10, Matthew 20, these are all situations where Jesus has healed people's sight instantly or nearly instantly. So it's not like this process is particularly required. 
So what is happening here? I think one clue to what's going on here is another slightly unusual verse, which is John 9 and verse 14, which says that now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. And it seems a bit weird that these are kind of placed on a level playing field, making mud and opening a man's eyes. If someone asked me to do one, um, I know which one I'd feel more comfortable doing. And yet um, John draws out both of these, as well as the fact that it's a Sabbath. And what's happening here is the Pharisees and their laws around the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day of rest given by God um, to his people in order for them to have a day of rest and a day of coming back to God. But what the Pharisees had done is they'd layered on top of this all sorts of rules and regulations over exactly what rest looked like, exactly what work looked like, the things that you were and weren't allowed to do. Um, and to me, that doesn't sound particularly restful. Um, and the Pharisees had all these things that they'd put on top of what God's original intention for the Sabbath was. And there are quite a few ways in which Jesus um, takes into account with this. In Mark chapter 2, for instance, um, the disciples are picking corn on the Sabbath, and the, disciples, uh, and the, the Pharisees sorry, deem this to be work. And Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The intention here being that the Sabbath is not about all these rules and regulations of what you can and can't do, but of an opportunity to have this rest and this time with God. But the Pharisees' rules bring them into um, a um, conflict with uh, Jesus here. And they do it in a couple of ways. One of the rules that the uh, Pharisees apparently had was that healing on the Sabbath was forbidden. Um, I'm not entirely sure what sort of spate of Sabbath-based healings they had that required them to make this rule, but this was apparently one of the things that you weren't allowed to do on the Sabbath. But another thing that you weren't allowed to do, among many things, was um, kneading clay, as it was called, kneading with a K, uh, not just requiring clay, um, which is obviously combining um, moisture and dirt to make clay. I'm not a clayologist, but I'm assuming that's how it works, more or less. But the process that Jesus does in making this mud is exactly this action which is prohibited by the Pharisees on the Sabbath. And this is one of the reasons why John um, brings this out in verse 14, that the fact that Jesus had done both of these actions on the Sabbath meant that he was flying in direct contrast to what the Pharisees would say was allowed on the Sabbath. And it is a result of this that in verse 16, the Pharisees insist that this man, Jesus, is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. They've decided that because he's not keeping their version of the Sabbath and their understanding of the Sabbath, that Jesus isn't keeping the Sabbath at all, and therefore is not from God. And what's happening here is, again, quite unusual. You'd expect that if, in your midst, someone who'd been born blind and who'd been begging had suddenly received his sight, this would be a cause for great celebration. But instead, the Pharisees are basically launching an inquiry into what's happened. They call the man in, and they ask him what's happened to him. They're then not convinced that the man is who they thought he was, so they bring his parents in to try and get them to validate that this man was indeed their son. And they're like, yeah, yeah yes, of course he is. And then the man comes back in again, and they interrogate him again. And the second time he comes in, in verse 24, they tell him to give glory to God by telling the truth because they know they say they know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. And later on, in verse 34, as they 
throw the man out of the temple. They tell him that he himself was steeped in sin at birth as they throw him out, which is another misunderstanding that the Pharisees have about the nature of sin. This is something that's also picked up by the disciples in verse 2 when they ask the question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? There was this expectation that all sin and suffering, or suffering, sorry, was a result of sin. And there was even this theory at the time that children could sin in the womb, and that was what caused birth defects. But Jesus very quickly says that that's not the case. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. This isn't the cause of all suffering. And yet the Pharisees have taken this notion of this man being blind and therefore being sinful and use that to completely discredit his testimony. And not only have they discredited his testimony, but far worse, they've not recognized the person of Jesus in front of them. So what's happened is by their rules and by their regulations, they've got so caught up in how they understand God to act that they can have God incarnate standing in front of them and they don't recognize him. I think it's hard to imagine being further from the truth than that. And I think for us, it's very easy sometimes for us to get these false pictures and these false ideas of what God is like. Sometimes they can be very big ideas. We can have big misunderstandings about who God is as a whole. We can have a picture of God as purely wrathful and angry and out to get us. We might have a picture of God as just aloof and distant and uninterested in us. Some of us might just not think that God is there at all. And it's very easy to start building our theology on ideas about God that just aren't true. And as we can see from the example of the Pharisees, this can sometimes lead us really far away from where God is. And so I think something that's really important for us to keep doing is to keep coming back to the very source of where our faith comes from, to come back to the Gospels and to come back to the person of Jesus. I think it can be really helpful sometimes to read through the Gospels and to try and read through it with fresh eyes, not to come at it with our preconceived notions about who Jesus is going to be, what God is like, but to allow us to meet Jesus again through the Gospels to see who he is. I wonder when the last time you read through a Gospel from start to finish was and got a chance to meet Jesus again. I think as we do that, as we come back to the very heart of our faith, the very center of what makes our faith what it is, I think sometimes that can help us to highlight misconceptions and ideas that we've had that have been wrong maybe for years or decades and gives us an opportunity to correct that. Because sometimes if we have this wrong idea of who God is, that can blind us like it blinded the Pharisees to the way that God is working in our lives and the, and the things that God wants to do in us, with us, and through us. So that's the Pharisees. The Pharisees who could see but had become blind. And when Jesus talks about the blind who will see, um, you will probably be less surprised as to who I'm going to use uh, for the example from this passage here, which is the man who was blind from birth. And the man in this passage goes on both a spiritual and a physical journey in the process of his healing. This starts in verse six and seven, when Jesus puts the mud on his eyes, sends him to wash and sends him away. And it's while he's away washing at the pool that the man's sight is restored. Which in particular means that after his first encounter with Jesus, he still hasn't actually physically seen Jesus. 
This doesn't happen until verse 35 of our passage after the conversation that he's had with the Pharisees when Jesus comes to find him. And we see throughout this passage the journey that the man goes on spiritually in his understanding of Jesus. In verse 11, having just come back, he's asked how his eyes were opened. And he replies, verse 11, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. It's a very mechanistic description of what happened. This happened and this happened and this happened. And he only refers to the man they call Jesus. Later on, when he's in front of the Pharisees for the first time, uh, in verse 17, when he's asked about Jesus, he says that the man is a prophet. He understands that Jesus is from God, but that's all his understanding gives him at this time. When he's brought in a second time, and when the Pharisees come to him in verse 24 and say that we know that this Jesus is a sinner, the man's reply, I think, is incredibly wise. In verse 25, he says, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. He doesn't understand the full context of what's happened to him. He doesn't understand the full context of who Jesus is, but he knows what Jesus has done for him. And later on in verses 31 to 33, he says that we know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He knows that what's happened to him is from God. And even in just this very simple understanding of what's happened to him, he's managed to go ahead of the Pharisees, who really have completely missed what's going on. And it's after this that he has his second encounter with Jesus in verse 35. Jesus has heard that they've thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, now you have now seen him. And he means that in both senses. This is his first time setting physical eyes on Jesus, but also it's his first time seeing for the first time who Jesus actually is, understanding that he is the son of man. And his understanding leads him to the correct reaction, to refer to Jesus as Lord and to worship him. And I think one of the significant things about the journey, one of the things I really like about the journey that this man goes on is that he doesn't actually get a lot of answers to the things that have happened to him. He doesn't get an answer from Jesus as to why he was blind. He doesn't really get an answer to Jesus as to exactly what's happened. But he finds out what he needs to know in order to be able to follow Jesus. And I think this image of Jesus as the light of the world is quite helpful because light, in one sense, is extraordinarily complicated. In physics, there's this notion of the wave-particle duality and if you have a bingo card and you're expecting wave-particle duality to appear in this talk, then that's probably a center square. Um, this question, is light a particle? Is it a wave? There are ways in which it behaves like one. There are ways in which it behaves like another. And sort of merging these together to understand what light actually is and how it actually behaves can be extraordinarily complicated. 
And yet, at the same time, none of us need to understand wave-particle duality in order to come into here and to see. None of us need to have an understanding of exactly what's going on with light in order to look around and to see light, to see what light is showing us, and to follow light. Indeed, newborn babies can open their eyes and they can see their parents without having an understanding of the wave-particle duality. I assume I've not been a baby for a while. Um, gone off my notes now. Uh, <laughs> this is what happens. Um, but yes, this idea of light being very complicated and at the same time very straightforward to follow and to use, I think can be really helpful in our journey and our walk as Christians. Because I think for a lot of us, we will have questions. We will have things that we don't understand about God or about our faith. Ways in which God is working that we just don't understand and we just don't see. And the Bible and the Gospels don't actually tell us everything that we could possibly know about God. And in a way, that's kind of relieving. Because if you think about the God who created the universe, it would almost be a little bit concerning if we could fully understand him. If I have an idea of God that fits entirely inside my own head, then that's almost certainly where that God actually lives. In order for us to truly encounter the God who created the universe and created each one of us. He has to be so much greater than us. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. There are things that he does that are too wonderful for us to understand. And the gospel and the Bibles don't tell us everything that there is to possibly know about God. These verses we've read before um, in previous um, talks, John 20 and verse 31, as to why John's written his gospel. Indeed, verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. We don't have a record of everything that Jesus did in his life. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We don't have a full understanding of everything that God is doing, but we know enough to be able to put our trust in him and to come and to follow him. And Jesus has come before us. There's some really small things that I just really wanted to finish with um, in this passage. And one of the really small things is in chapter 9, verse 1, that's very, very easy to miss. It says, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And I think this is really significant because in this passage, the blind man doesn't come to him. Jesus sees the blind man first. And likewise, in verse 35, when, Je when the man meets Jesus for the second time, Jesus has sought him out himself. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And Jesus is seeking out each one of us as well. Jesus has brought his light into the world so that we can see him and so that we can follow him. And so that leaves us, I think, with one of two possible reactions to this light and to how we need to react to it. Pharisees had allowed themselves to be blinded by their own misunderstandings, had allowed their own misconceptions of who God is to cloud their vision and to stop them from seeing who God really is and where God was really working. Whereas the blind man looked to Jesus, he saw Jesus, followed him, believed and obeyed, despite the questions he may have had, despite not knowing everything, he was able to look at Jesus he was able to say, 
Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And he was able to worship him as the son of man. I think we should pray at this point. Um, Would you like to stand um, if you're able to? And we'll have a few moments just to reflect on some things and then we'll be praying as well. The first thing I think it would be really good for us to think about and to ask God about is do we have any misunderstandings about God? Is there anything big or small that we're doing or we're thinking about God that isn't correct? Take some time to, to ask God that and to listen to see if he puts his finger on anything for us. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have shown us who you are. And we pray that if there's anything that we're thinking about you, anything that we believe about you that isn't true, would you gently correct us? Would you gently reveal to us more of who you really are and help us to meet the true God? Next, I think it would be really good for us to bring and lay before God any questions that we might have any aspects of our faith that we find difficult or challenging, anything that we just don't understand at the moment. And if we can bring that to God and lay it at his feet. Lord, we thank you that we can trust you. We thank you that you have shown yourself to us. And we pray now for these things where we don't, have, we don't have full understanding, where we have questions. We pray that you would bless us with continued wisdom to grow to know you more and to love you more. And we pray that you grant us peace with those areas where we don't have understanding yet, that we would be able to continue to follow you and to serve you. And finally, let's pray for Jesus, the light of the world, to meet with us where we are. This may be something that we're doing for the first time this evening. This may be something that we've been doing for years and years. But wherever we are in our walk with Christ, let's invite him in and look to him as the light of the world. Lord God, we thank you that you have shone your light in our lives. We thank you that you have shown yourself to us in the person of Jesus. We thank you that you came to earth, that you lived and suffered and died to make a way for us to come back to you. We pray that we would see and recognize you always as the light of the world. Amen. We're going to move to our final song now. This is a song that reminds us that Jesus is our cornerstone.